Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm always joined by this woman here. I'm still waiting on that. <laughs> yeah, that's all I could get for you. This woman here, <laughs> attorney Sonia Madison. How you doing, Sonia? <laughs> I'm doing all right. <laughs> Good. Well, everybody already knows who you are anyway. The beloved, the admired, the adored, mostly in our own head, Sonia Madison. Say, sometimes you have to be reminded. So I have to train you to say it. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I almost vomited. <laughs> Great minds. I was gonna say, did you enjoy it, the Super Bowl? I did enjoy the Super Bowl. It was actually a good game. I I enjoyed the game again. Of course, I didn't have a dog in the fight, and so I experimented around. Therese made me make chili for the first time. Really, I think I don't recall ever making chili before, but she's like, "I want you to make the chili." I said, "What? Really? Okay." I'm a chef extraordinaire anyway, so it was a piece of cake, you know, let's throw this in there, throw that in there, and then voila, it's delicious. Yeah, how about yourself? Yeah, it was good. I will say um, the commercials are something I typically watch, and um, I don't know if you saw the Jesus Gets Us commercial that's been making controversial headlines. Do you no, that? I didn't see that. I didn't see that one. You're making chili? Was that, was that, was that one? I was probably making chili. About At that time, I was eating, I'm sure. <laughs> Belching. <and. laughs> probably shouldn't. I probably shouldn't mention that I was eating chili based off of our topic uh, for today anyway. But And now for, after last week, I'm realizing that chili is not helping my prostate health either. So, <laughs> Hey, we tried but to no, what about the reckoning here. Well, what about the commercial? Jesus... Get to? Jesus gets us. I think that's what it was. But in, in various um, steals in the commercial is showing someone washing someone else's feet. So, I mean, mm. you see at one point um, a woman washing another woman's feet. You may see um, someone working on the train that is getting her feet washed by someone that may be more professional. Uh, you may see someone who appears to be like a, a homosexual or getting their feet washed by a guy that a male, another male. I mean, it was various steals. And the again, I've only remember seeing it once or twice, but at the end, they, they say, you know, Jesus did not teach hate. Um, Jesus washed feet. And so it's kind of like a Jesus gets us. Well, one of the controversies was that it was sponsored, and this is allegedly, I don't know anything about it, but it was sponsored by Hobby Lobby. And people were saying, do not donate to this um, organization because it's going to be used to continue to promote um, anti-abortion as well as anti-LGBTQ policies. But they had a gay person, Jesus washing, or somebody washing the feet of a gay person. Well, again, right? when like I said, I'm gay walking across the screen, I mean, you, you can make the analogy based on <laughs> what the person was wearing. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, but, you know, a lot of people will argue 
there that you can love someone uh, while still not being supportive of certain, certain policies. A again, it's controversy. So that, wow. that that I don't know if you saw the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, I, I did see that. <laughs> I did see that for a minute. I didn't realize that it was a commercial. I didn't realize that it was a political ad at that point. I was like, why are they showing this? And he caught a lot of flack from his family members. <laughs> like, you know, we don't support you. Don't put our family members in this. <laughs> he did. Uh, he did an apology um, explaining that he had nothing to do with it. These packs can't talk to us or get our approval and all this kind of stuff. No, oh, wow, that's ridiculous. <laughs> no sort of but, politics in the Super Bowl. No, <laughs> that's where it belongs, right? Of course, you know, as long as it's conservative, as long as it's a conservative politics, you can't have anything like kneeling during an anthem or anything. Right, that I don't even feel like they didn't like to lift every voice and sing. That was such a big thing on Twitter. Why are we singing yeah. the Black National Anthem? It should just be one national anthem. Like, are we seriously? <laughs> <laughs> upset over this song <laughs> well there's already a black uh a black independence day so <laughs> it's juneteenth so hey we're we mad about that too <laughs> we're supposed to shut up and just take what we the crumbs we can get right <laughs> I'm, gonna leave, I'm gonna leave that one out there hanging for you you can catch all the all of the flack for that one there. But. I'm just saying that if that's the message, then kind of like what they told LeBron, just shut up and dribble, right? And what Laura Ingram said, shut up and dribble. Jesus, that's shame. horrible. Hey, so your girl is uh, supposed to be testifying before the court tomorrow, though, right? Uh, not tomorrow, oh, Thursday. Uh, but this past oh. Thursday, is it? Yeah, Fonnie Willis. Yeah, well, there there's a hearing schedule, so we'll see. Because I feel like it, it constantly gets pushed back here and there, but we'll see. And and it, and again, the issue, of course, that's being raised is whether or not it's relevant. Because um, she's trying yeah. to push back on you know, not only getting excused, but having to divulge any evidence related to this sort. And I, while I agree with her position, it's not relevant at the same time. Like we saw what's going on in New York, so many allowances got made because of Trump that other people would not have received. That I can, mm -hmm. I can see a judge being even more cautious with this as well. Yeah, it's and I guess the key question is, is whether or not and this is beyond me, whether or not funds were used that were used to pay him were used to enrich her afterwards. I'm like, if this is this man's paycheck, why he can't spend his money however he wants to spend it on. That's ridiculous well, to me. And, and to me, that's more of a question that offends the taxpayers. Like, that's a separate lawsuit, right? If you're misusing funds, and that's something that, as taxpayers, we need to talk to you about. But that has nothing to do with, did you abuse this office to bring charges that were legitimately held as evidence by a grand jury? I mean, that's, that's a whole separate conversation. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why I say I think she's, of course, arguing that none of this stuff needs to be, you know, presented. None of this stuff needs to be examined. And the idea that I need to recuse myself or dismiss this is is, is without merit. And to me, the where the how the money was spent is not necessarily relevant. Again, unless you are showing that it was used to buy evidence or used to fabricate a story. I might go on the record right now and that and say that I wouldn't be surprised if the whole charge against him got dropped as a result of this. 
but not because of her wrongdoing, but because you can't get another prosecute another DA in Georgia to prosecute it. And you can't get another because it was already difficult enough for her to really even find prosecutors who are willing to take up the case uh, just because for, if not for political reasons, also because of the number of threats that they're getting to their persons and to their family members as well. So it wouldn't surprise me if the entire case in this situation is dropped against him and that he gets out of the other Mar-a-Lago and the Jack Smith case. And if he does, all hell is going to break loose because people are going to be saying all hell Donald Trump the Messiah because he and this is and listen I wrote an article some years ago called could Trump be Antichrist and you know and I'm not saying that I believe that he is but I mean some of his doctrine is Antichrist you know if you believe that you can redeem yourself that's Antichrist. And and that's what he said. He just never had to ask for forgiveness. <clears throat> and that if he did wrong, he just basically tries to make it right himself. And so um, I'm concerned because one of the things that the scripture talks about is, you know, a person rising to power after having survived death or being resurrected from the death, from dead, from the dead. And and whether that's a literal physical death or whether it's resurrecting after a political death or after a social death or, 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 or figurative or metaphorical death, being able to still rise from the ashes and assume power. That would be, to me, um, an ominous occurrence if he actually did get acquitted of all of these things or if he was found guilty, not, not guilty of all of them, even if he went through trials, he still will come out on top and will do nothing but invigorate his base to continue to worship him even more. And so I'd be very concerned about that happening. I think it's a very real possibility. <laughs> it's a possibility, but I would be surprised. I would be surprised. The evidence is so overwhelming. Uh, because to me, they they had to have such overwhelming evidence even to bring this. But it's so overwhelming. We've already seen that um, Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani has already been held liable for his part um, we we see that even when it came to the sexual assault with Jean E. Jean Carroll, I mean, he's been convicted. We see that in New York. He's been convicted of fraud. The convictions aren't the issue. It's one, you're not going to get your money, which we understand. That's why he is running for president. But two, the base doesn't care. So to me, there is no point in, you know, not going ahead and going through this process and allowing the conviction to happen because it's still not going to change the sentiments of its base. Um, but I'm more so anxious to see what the Supreme Court is going to do as it not only relates to Colorado, but also, you know, they've given his attorney one week, you know, one week to prove to us why he should receive some type of Oh, absolute immunity, <laughs> whatever that, mm. whatever that means. And so, um, so, I mean, again, I'm seeing the judicial system play out, not in his favor, but to your point, I just don't see people caring about it. Three, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, we're talking about black history this month and we're talking about black health. It matters. And so uh, we're not just talking about national security issues. We're talking also about black security. And, and one of the ways that we maintain our health uh, security is to maintain health. In fact, you know, poor health is one of the main reasons why in hospital bills, medical expenses in the United States is one of the leading reasons why people file bankruptcy. Uh, 
is because the cost of medicine is so exorbitant. We're not necessarily talking about the cost of it today, but today what we want to talk about is some of the uh, diseases that inflict the black population dis disproportionately. I mean, there's a whole host of diseases that do af afflict the black community uh, more aggressively than it does other non-black communities and particularly white communities. But I'm delighted today to have on the show with us Dr. Cesar Cardona. He is a graduate of the New Jersey Medical School and did his residency at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, and completed a fellowship in nephrology at Vanderbilt University. For a period of time, he was also uh, on faculty at Meharry Medical College and served as the director of the uh, Division of Nephrology. Currently, he is in private practice and uh, working at the, um, I believe it is, uh, Nephrology. He's a partner at Nephrology Associates in Tennessee. It's one of the uh, finest nephrologists in the city, in the state, in the country. He's married to one woman, has two children, a Titans fan, and I don't know if he golfs or not, but I'm sure that if he had more time, he would really the like to go. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, this is what doctors do. And so I, I really want to bring on to the uh, show Dr. Cardona, if we can get him to come and join us. All right. How you doing? Sir, welcome to the Roundtable Console. Thank you for joining us here on the round table console. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay out the politics. You know, I'm going to talk about health. <laughs> you said I anything. read on the news. I'm not that informed <laughs> to really make any kind of very good statements that are backed up by yeah. facts, you know? <laughs> yeah. We will not put you in jeopardy of that. Only, only right, Sonya really likes that. to, Sonya <laughs> likes to jump out on that ledge uh, to by herself. I be trying to pull her back sometimes. Like, Sonya, don't go so far. Come back here. <laughs> but she doesn't hold her tongue, Eddie, so I appreciate that, Anna. Yeah, so well, tell us... Uh, a little bit about what is nephrology and and how did you get interested in uh, nephrology and why? Okay. Well, um, when I was in medical school, I noticed that like most of the difficult cases were nephrology and people tended to say, well, you know, let's call the kidney doctor to deal with that or let's call the kidney doctor to deal with that. that that's too complicated. Let's call the kidney doctor to do with that. And I was like, well, why are we running away from that stuff? You know? So I was like, well, if they're getting all the hard stuff, let me do that. I know it sounds crazy, like counterintuitive. <laughs> like, you know, people sometimes pick the easy way out. I was like, I'm going to say only know. to Mark because he said, let me get away and do ENT. <laughs> oh, he did. Hey, listen. <laughs> hey, listen. I'm going to deal, hey. deal with these uh, surgeries and. Uh, listen, head, know. neck anatomy is some of the most complicated anatomy in that the body. True. So you know, there we go. <laughs> and it's one of the most competitive fields, too. Thank you. <laughs> Carry <is>. on. <laughs> Nephrology, I think about like 30% go unfilled because people do not want to go through the hard stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my uncle was also on dialysis. Um, he was a very bad patient. He um, ate a lot of avocados, which have a lot of potassium, um, which, you know, if you take too much potassium and your potassium gets too high, it could stop your heart, you know. Um, but the kidneys get rid of potassium. That's why it's such an issue. Like, typically, when you talk about a cardiac diet, 
they say you want a good deal of potassium and low sodium in there because potassium at appropriate dosages is actually pretty good for blood pressure. But if it's too high, it's, it's too bad. You know, it's mm. a bad thing. But, you know, yeah, I got into it. Because... Guacamole. Guacamole, yeah. So oh <laughs> I can't imagine our issues are eating too much avocado. But you, you well, you know, he had he had uh, he he was in Puerto Rico, so he had an avocado tree in his backyard. Mm. So he literally just had to open up the screen, look mm. at the ground, pick something up, wash it off, and eat it. Now you're of Puerto Rican descent as well. Yes, yes. Okay, no, great. <laughs> his <laughs> uncle is separate. <laughs> but but I asked that to say um, by marriage. Well, but I asked to say what typically is the food for, you know, Amer Black Americans in particular that that kind of messes up their kidneys. Because, I mean, I joke that I don't think we're eating a lot of avocados, but at the same time, we're, we're probably eating something else that, yeah. are, that has too much of something that is hurt. Well, salt, you know, um, salt. Mark, Mark mentioned about the, the chili, you know. <laughs> in judgment, salt. I feel it. You, you know? would just stick your head when he said, "Like, um, you know, ultimately, when when you look at just historically, I mean, you know, food and just in general in the South and just among African Americans, Black culture, Caribbean culture, loaded with salt, you know, loaded with carbs, and you know, part of the issue that we deal with is when you see a doctor." You know, the doctor says, hey, you know, we need to, to diet and exercise. I'm like, okay, I need to diet. I need to exercise. What does that mean? Hmm. You know, like if, if, I, if, if you asked 10 people, what does diet and exercise mean to you? You're going to get 10 different answers. You know, some people are going to say, well, you know, walking. Some people are going to say running. Some people are going to say, I got to go to the gym two hours a day for a week, you know. That's exercise, you know, but not everybody needs to do that, you know. So if you walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week, not related to work, that's mm. that's like moderate exercise that you could do to help with losing weight, staying healthy, improving your cardiovascular health. Um, diet, you know, low carb, low sodium diet. But the average Tennessean has about eight grams of sodium in their diet. And yeah, the American Heart Association. Daily? Yeah, daily. Are you kidding me? Well, I don't feel yeah. so bad then. I don't. Yeah. I don't get eight grams. No, that's the average Tennessean. That's the average Tennessean. So, and then um, mm. I, I should have brushed up my statistics, but typically when you go to the hospital, you recommend a low sodium diet. They're doing two grams, but then mm. there's a, a little bit of discrepancy in terms of whether two grams is okay or if you should do four grams. Most people will agree. Uh, two grams. I think two grams of sodium or less is probably better in terms of restricting sodium for safety reasons and for overall health and blood pressure reasons. But, you know, I'm not. And so for a period of time, I'm, for a period I'm of time, sorry. they actually went down to like 1500 for blacks, yeah. though, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's because the more crazy. sodium you have in your diet, the higher the issue uh, is in terms of blood pressure, you know? So for people, again, that are still trying to understand what does the kidney do and why is it important and, you know, what happens if it fails? Go ahead and educate us. Oh, uh, go through that. Okay. So by people, she means her. her? Okay. So you know, ultimately, so ultimately, the kidneys are kind of like the, the garbage truck of the body. You know, they get rid of the waste, right? 
So what I usually tell people is when you're seeing a kidney doctor and we're looking at your labs, we're looking at something called the creatinine and something called the estimated GFR, okay? And then you use the creatinine to calculate the estimated GFR, all right? So if you think about the kidneys like the garbage truck, and if the garbage truck is not doing its job, there's a whole bunch of trash everywhere. You look around, you see trash. So you measure, there's like a lot of trash. So that creatinine value that measures is going to be high because the, the kidneys are not doing its job to get rid of that trash. And then by having a high kidney function, when you calculate that EGFR, it's going to be low because it's basically showing how well the kidneys are working. So if that value goes too low and the kidneys aren't doing their job, then you start to hold on to more fluid. Your potassium goes up. You can't control the acid base in your body. So your body has to have a certain level of acid and base to kind of maintain stability. So if your kidneys fail, you get too much acid in your body. And then you get toxins that build up in your body. And then when those toxins are really high, when your kidney function is really low, then you need dialysis. And dialysis, dialysis being, I know so, we hear dialysis a lot, but what, what, what exactly is dialysis? So dialysis is basically <laughs> a way of purifying the, 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 sorry, we got some. All right. <laughs> Hold on one second. All right. Sorry. Sorry. My son was uh, have, having a moment. He, he's three. So I'm just <laughs> like, okay. But um, dialysis, there's two ways to do dialysis. One is where we basically clean out your blood. So we um, either through a fistula, which is surgically created in your arm. Uh, um, and it basically is um, where you take your arteries and your veins and you put them together and it kind of gets, uh, creates a really big vein. Because if you ever like seen someone draw blood, you know that, oh, well, this vein is gone or that vein is gone. So imagine getting a whole bunch of blood to come out of your body, go into a machine and go back in. So you need to create a vessel where that can work really well. So that's where you create a fistula, where your artery and your vein are put together and it kind of makes it a little bit big so that it can deal with that trauma. So then when your blood goes into the machine, it gets cleaned out and put, put right back in. And then there's something else called peritoneal dialysis, which is where the lining of your um, peritoneum is used as a way to kind of remove toxins. And, um, you know, you do that at home. And the majority of the country of the world does mostly peritoneal dialysis. The U.S. doesn't do as much. Interesting. Why is that? Why is it that we don't do uh, much of the peritoneal dialysis? So I think that some of it is um, economic. Some of it is comfort. So in the 80s, when they started to pay for dialysis, they started to have these large dialysis organizations. And if you're a kidney doctor, you could just have like 20, 30, 40 patients in one area and then see all of them like just going in and walking around the room, seeing all of them, then walking out, you know? So if you think about using your time, that's very time manageable. The second thing is that, um, you know, I think that, we, you know, some people just kind of got used to that concept, but, 
you know, ultimately, I, I think PD is very good. And, and PD is the acronym for peritoneal dialysis. And, um, you know, if you think about what is needed for hemodialysis, you need a company to oversee it. You need um, labs to be checked. You need a lot of water. You need electricity. You need all these different things. You need a staff with a nurse and tech and a nurse manager and then the you know, periodic meetings to ensure quality and then someone to oversee it and then regional people to oversee all that kind of stuff. You know, you need a lot of organization and revenue to do something like that. A lot of other, you know, countries, they may not necessarily have that ability to kind of put that kind of revenue into something like that, you know. But the thing is this, um, peritoneal dialysis is, it has a very good quality of life for patients that want to do it because you do it throughout the day. You're at home. You could do it. If you're a teacher, you could take a break and in between your classes, you know, do an exchange where you put the fluid in your belly, let it sit and, um, you know, empty the stuff before you put it in. So it's, it's very kind of user friendly, you know? Well, I don't want to encourage people to be okay if, if that's the trajectory that they want to go to. But I imagine um, people come to you when it's too late or when they've missed certain symptoms. So what would you say, assuming they're not dieting as you would like, what yeah. would you say at what point are you saying, okay, well, if this is happening to you or you're experiencing certain symptoms or you're a certain age, you need to get it checked. Yeah. So what I typically say is I think screening by a regular doctor. So one thing that I want to talk about, which may be completely different and the focus is sometimes it's the basics that you got to focus on. So a lot of people in our community don't have primary care. So if you think about it this way, especially black men, you know, so a lot of times in my clinic, if you if I had to look at the patient population in terms of African Americans and uh, people of color, a lot of times it's women more so than men that are being seen. Men they eventually get seen, but it's sometimes later. And a lot of that is just that they don't feel the need to go to a doctor. Culturally, they're always working. You know, Puerto Ricans do the same thing. You know, um, part of the issues why my uncle was such a bad patient because he had two three jobs. He was working night shift and then. You know, every other day is working the other shift. So he basically just worked himself into bad health. And by the time he tried or thought about taking care of it, it was too late, you know. And I think that a lot of that is also an economic issue. You know, like if you think about it, if you don't have insurance or if you don't have money to see a doctor or if you don't have the time or the ability to take off, you're not going to see one. So how do I get, how does someone get a, um, to see a kidney doctor? Typically, they see their primary care doctor. They draw labs. They see that their kidney function is bad, and then they come and see me. So you have to have a gatekeeper to go into the facility. And typically, the gatekeepers for specialists like cardiologists or kidney doctors or lung doctors or any other kind of specialty is a primary care doctor. So if a primary care doctor is not even available, how are they going to see me? You know, so um, just kind of focusing on some of the issues that you had. Like, so basics are they see a primary care doctor, they draw labs, they look at their urine. If someone has protein in the urine, that could be an indicator of poor kidney health. If their kidney numbers are not doing well, that's an obvious indicator of poor kidney health. And then um, 
you know, different primary care doctors have different thresholds for sending someone to a kidney doctor. But ultimately, you know, one of the universal thresholds is if their kidney function number, the EGFR is less than 60, a lot of times I'll get a consult then. Some doctors will wait until later if, um, you know, if there's no protein in the urine, uh, some, some, you know, but realistically, I tell pretty much all primary care doctors, uh, if it's less than 60, just, just have them see me because it might be something else other than diabetes or high blood pressure. And I think that it's better to have someone see someone early rather than too late, you know? So, so you touched on it a little bit. Feel, I guess. I guess it's not something you can feel. I mean, it because it, you also miss your urine. If you're, I imagine if yeah. you're consistently having dark urine, maybe that because yeah. I, I agree it, it is a problem that we're not seeing our primary care physician but at the same time if we do or when we do I want to make sure we are articulating appropriate symptoms or articulating yeah. what it is so that they can do the appropriate test or they can't look into look into that oh symptom. no I understand that so the the issue is that a lot of times people really only have symptoms from a kidney standpoint when it's too late when they need dialysis or things like that like you might have some mild symptoms like swelling in the legs or some lab abnormalities might be kind of just slightly off um, in the early stages and then more moderate. But realistically, you, you only really have symptoms of kidney toxicity where your body can't get rid of the kidney toxins when it's too late. And by then they should have already seen or been referred to a kidney doctor, you know? Um, that's why I said like the biggest issue with kidney health is not so much the symptoms, you know, the symptoms come really late, you know? But the issue is if people are getting their labs checked, if they don't have a primary care doctor, they're not going to get their lab checked. If they're getting urine checked, you know, not, not all uh, medical conditions merit a urine, but pretty much if you have diabetes or high blood pressure, you have a urine at least one, once a year, depending on how things are, you know, and for other, for other conditions, probably like every three to six months or something like that, you know? So um, can the kidney heal itself once it's injured? So there is something called acute kidney injury, and there's something called chronic kidney disease, all right? So the majority of nephrology practice is chronic kidney disease and hypertension management. Um, in the hospital, oftentimes, and sometimes in, in the outpatient setting, you have something called acute kidney injury. So... Um, I give the example of my roommate from college, all right? And bear with me, because I'm going to go on a tangent and down a rabbit hole, all right? Um, so my roommate from college, he's about 5'4", all right? And um, we, 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 were, we were friends with a couple of guys on the football basketball team. So he decided to go to the gym, and he saw them there. He's like, hey, I'm going to go lift with you guys. So he's 5'4". Um, one of the guys is about 6'6". Six, six, Another one was like 6'3", the other one 6'4". These are like 200-something pound guys. And my roommate from college probably like 5'4", a buck 30, you know? <laughs> so this was just a recipe for disaster. So he's over there, he's lifting and trying to keep up, and then his arms are basically falling off. He walks out, he comes in, he's like, yo, I just lifted with two of the football players and one of the basketball players. I'm like, okay, good, how do you feel? He's like, I think I might die, you know? The next day, <laughs> he started peeing, like, really dark urine. Coca-Cola. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> like, just black Coca-Cola-looking urine. And he had something called rhabdo, all right? So rhabdomyolysis is 
you know, typically when like your muscles kind of break down and then you just kind of pee really dark and it can lead to renal failure. Um, he went to the, you know, the college, um, the college health and luckily his kidney function was okay, but they told him to just drink tons of water and hydrate. And usually if your kidneys are healthy, that can happen. Now, if you have pre-existing kidney disease and he would have done that, his kidneys would have definitely gotten really bad. And I've seen many people, um, you know, do basically exert themselves so much that they can go into rhabdo and develop kidney failure. And sometimes you don't even have rhabdo. You just get really dehydrated and your kidneys get bad. And then you go to the hospital because you feel bad. Your kidney function is really bad. And then they give you fluid. You feel better. Um, oftentimes you go back to normal or go back to close to normal. Um, not all the time, but, um, you know, I guess that's one example of what we call acute kidney injury where your kidneys kind of heal itself, but yeah, that can happen. Yeah. So there's rhabdomyolysis as, uh, it's one of the things that we hear a lot with marathon runners as well, or mm -hmm. people who yeah. are inadequately trained for marathons and, so that really dark urine is is just because of the breakdown of the muscle proteins and they yeah. and again the body the kidneys as you said being the garbage trunk just trying to clear all of that out of there yeah and then when it's really bad they just quit they said no you guys gonna have to pick up their own trash I'm done I'm out it's five <laughs> o'clock peace <laughs> as long as they don't bring a gun uh, so. Question for you. So you mentioned it before about hypertension and diabetes. And how does that all factor into uh, kidney health and kidney disease? Okay. So the number one cause of kidney disease leading to people going on dialysis is diabetes. The number two cause is hypertension. The third common uh, indicator are people that have both. And then four is other, and other could be a host of other different things, you know. But um, ultimately, when you think about it that way, if you have well-controlled diabetes and well-controlled hypertension, then the likelihood of you going on dialysis is very low. The likelihood of you developing kidney disease is just kind of a lot of times really based on genetics, based on risk factors, based on your ability to control um, but sometimes, even with the best of scenarios and with the best of controls, you could you could still develop moderate to severe um, degrees of kidney disease. Sometimes mild um, degrees of kidney disease with those uh, medical conditions. So it's real important to kind of take care of it and have someone watch those levels. And I would have primary care doctors have a very low threshold to refer because. They're dealing with so many other things it's like, okay, what's your cholesterol level? What's your kidney number? What's your blood pressure? What are your liver? What's your liver function doing? Am I telling them to quit smoking? Am I telling them to, you know, get their colonoscopy and all the other things? So they have like five or six different things that they're speaking to every single patient about. So then they look at the creatinine. It's like, oh, it's a little off. Okay, drink some more water, you know? So like they have so many other things on their plate that they have to take care of. You know, and um, typically they're the the waiting room is full. They only have a few minutes to speak to each patient. They overbook people because people call and say, "Hey, you know, I really need to get in to see you." And then they say yes, and then uh, you know, and then people get mad at their waiting. It's like, well, you know, I'm overbooked. I have to speak with this person about end of life decisions. This other person, 
wants their medication refilled before they go on their trip. I got to do all this other stuff, you know? So they're wearing so many different hats. It's like, look, let's take this hat off. Here, kidney doctor, you take care of that, you know? So do you manage diabetes then or what's the I don't directly manage diabetes. Um, Typically, what I try to do is encourage the primary care doctors to make medication adjustments that will help with diabetes management or um, there are specific medications that we give that help uh, delay the progression of chronic kidney disease for management of in a setting of diabetes, especially with protein in the urine. And we try to make titrations on the medication appropriately so that we can have the best control. And sometimes that can take months, you know, because you try different things. You're like, okay, this one worked. Well, it did work, but then there was a side effect. Let me pull back on that. So some of the stuff is really trial and error. So to make sure I understand with the kidneys, I mean, it's not as much hereditary, but if you have a condition that's hereditary, it could put you in an escalated risk of having kidney failure. I mean, I know we talked about the food as well, but, yeah. you know, I, again, I just want to make sure people understand, like, you know, if you're predisposed to one, it, it can affect the other. So um, if, if you have a family history of diabetic kidney disease, you're 40% likely to develop diabetic kidney disease if you have diabetes or if you are diagnosed with diabetes. So that's kind of one specific statistic in terms of risk factors from a familial standpoint that is important. The second thing is um, hypertension is typically family, um, there's strong family history for that. And then diabetes is typically a family history for that. So then if you do the math, okay, diabetes and hypertension have strong family history. And then if you have a family history of diabetic kidney disease, you're more likely to develop that, um, you know, kidney disease due to diabetes. So there's a lot of that. And then the, the issue with management is a lot of times diet and exercise is also medication, you know? So you got to get on the right medications and you need to take them. Now the, um, so last week we, we talked to a, um, urologist, you probably know him, Dr. Billups as well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes. And so he was telling us um, that, particularly among the Black population, that PSAs were probably like 2.4 times less likely to get a PSA checked. And I'm wondering, as Black people, and a lot of that is probably not our own doing, because even if we're going to see the doctors, they very well may not necessarily order a PSA. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's one of those health disparities. Where do you see the disparities uh, in terms of access to care, uh, particularly in, in populations uh, of color, particularly in those areas where, where patients should be advocating for themselves to, 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 to get certain tests? For example, you mentioned if you have hypertension, you should at least once a year have your urine protein check. I could see very easily how a primary care doctor is not saying uh, they're checking your last, but if that's not part of their routine workup every year, they're just checking your, your, your renal function, your kidney function test, checking your blood count and your thyroid hormone levels. And then like, all of this looks pretty good right there. I'm going to leave it alone. But you were saying that that's maybe we should be also saying, Hey, maybe you should check my, 
yeah. urine protein at this point? Because can you have elevated urine protein with the normal creatinine? Yes. And remind our viewers what PSA is. Mark likes to It's a prostate-specific <laughs> antigen. And so we were talking about prostate screening. And so we were saying that, you know, we don't often get that PSA. Yeah. And one of the things that we encourage people to do is to, hey, be proactive about your health care. Ask your doctor to check a PSA if they're not doing a DRE, if they're not doing a digital rectal examination. Yeah. 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 So um, that's that's correct. So one disparity that has recently been corrected is the EGFR equation. Okay. So I'll kind of get into that a little bit. So um, there were several different studies for the EGFR equation. Uh, one was MDRD, which is uh, of trial modified dietary reduction as relates to kidney disease. I, I might be getting that wrong. Um, and there was a CKD epi, which is a chronic kidney disease epidemiological study. So they calculate their own EGFR equation. Uh, but the thing is, is that those equations broke down the EGFR based on race, because statistically speaking, when they looked at the EGFRs, they did notice a difference based on those formulas based on race. So um, what would oftentimes happen is that if someone's at an early level of chronic kidney disease, you have EGFR, non-African American, EGFR, African American, and if your EGFR was above 60, some labs don't even, uh, if your creatinine was calculated, sorry, to be to have an EGFR above 60, some didn't even put out the number. So, you know, if you're looking, it's like, okay, EGFR is greater than 60, so there's no number. Someone could be 80, 90, or someone could be 62. But if there's no number that's being spit out, how do you know what it is? And the other thing is that... Um, so then a lot of times you're, you just get confused because like, wait a minute, non-African-American, African-American, and you kind of just look at it. It's like, wait a minute, which one is this? So recently we've basically switched over to a non-race-based EGFR, which basically has was done through calculations to be race neutral. Okay. And I think that that has helped in terms of more referrals for African-Americans and eliminating a... Um, a disparity to some degree. And that's because African-Americans generally had a higher EGFR? They generally had a higher EGFR when you looked at the MDRD equation or a CKD epi. So, in, and the difference was probably like anywhere between six to eight points. But if you think about it, if you're a primary care doctor and you're referring someone when they're less than 60 versus if they are, you know, above that, if you're looking at the EGFR equation, you have two numbers, you might not always look at the right one. Hmm. You know, so, so it's like. So I don't want to, I don't, I, and I guess I still want to get some more clarity about this urine protein because you can still have protein in your urine, which is an indication of potential kidney injury and still have a normal creatinine. And so if you're, if your primary care doctor is only drawing blood work from you on an annual basis and you have hypertension, you can never, you can possibly, it's possible that you might have proteinuria and some ongoing kidney disease that neither you or your primary care doctor knows about, right? That's, that's correct. And it's not just the presence of protein, but it's also the quantity mm. because you could check protein in the urine in many different ways. There's the urinalysis, which is essentially 
you know, a dipstick and it just kind of spits out, okay, trace, which is like plus based on the color or like one plus or two plus or three plus. But when you start looking at them, it's like, is this teal or is this yellow? I don't really know. Like my wife says I'm colorblind. So mm -hmm. like I could definitely see looking at the thing and like looking at this and like, wait a minute, is this two plus or one plus? I don't know. You know? So um, you know, if you're not checking the urine, that's one thing. But then if, even if you check it, if you're just doing a urinalysis and it's trace or like just a little bit, then it's really hard to tell. Like some of the newer urinalysis where you actually send it to the lab, they have a slightly better calculation, but even then it doesn't give the exact amount of protein that you have in the urine. And one of the common consults that I have is people, especially younger people that have normal kidney function and they're peeing tons of protein. And the doctor's like, whoa, this person needs to go see a kidney doctor, you know? You know, when I often hear protein in the urine, I'm, I'm often hearing about pregnant women, preeclampsia. I mean, is that related to the kidney or is that something separately happening? No, it's it's definitely related to to the kidneys. Um, there have been studies that show that women that have preeclampsia um, can develop protein in the urine during preeclampsia. But then, you know, there there are different um, blood tests that have been checked. One is FLT one, I, I think it's FLT one or something like that, where that remains elevated, kind of throughout their lifetime. And it has been noted to be a contributor of chronic kidney disease and development of hypertension in the future. You know, so ultimately, preeclampsia, that condition in and of itself, it ha does have an increased risk of developing um, hypertension later in the future or chronic kidney disease later in the future. Um, I had one patient that she gave birth um, like 20 years ago, and she had preeclampsia and it never got better. She's developed kidney disease and it just kind of slowly over time got worse, you know? So, um, you know, I'm not going to necessarily get too much into politics, but in terms of women's health, if a woman is pregnant and it's, you know, before the 24 week period where it was prior to Dobbs decision, if she had significant preeclampsia or kidney issues or something like that, you know, because Women can have chronic kidney disease, <clears throat> excuse me, prior to being pregnant. Having chronic kidney disease does not prevent you from becoming pregnant. Being on dialysis does not prevent you from becoming pregnant. It just makes it harder to sustain the pregnancy and it makes it more likely to develop um, a lot of different complications from the pregnancy. You know, so that you can have a lot of issues that can potentially happen as a result of having chronic kidney disease, uh, as a result of having preeclampsia. And, you know, there's usually a 20 week cutoff. So um, if you had preexisting protein in the urine and hypertension prior to 20 weeks gestation, then that was preexisting. If it's 20 weeks, if it develops after 20 weeks, then it's essentially considered preeclampsia or pregnancy induced hypertension, which is, you know, the, med the medical term um, for it. So, women have lost their children, developed strokes, heart attacks, and, you know, had a lot of major issues as it relates to preeclampsia, you know? Yeah. So, well, and I often hear a lot of women that really want to push through, you know, the yeah. pregnancies or are wanting to have it natural and, and, and 
particularly when it comes to us as Black women, we already, to some degree, have doctors who think that we are just built to sustain whatever pain. So if we articulate a pain, it becomes, oh, you're just being a complainer. You're not, you know, truly in pain or you're not truly having an issue. But but again, I just want to make sure then you're articulating, hey, listen, not only is there a certain point that perhaps you may, may want to rethink a, a vaginal birth or a natural birth, but also make sure you're, you're feeling or listening to something that could, you know, like you said, trigger a, a pre-existing condition or, or trigger, you know, a problem or complication in your pregnancy. Yeah. And the thing is this, like there are, you know, maternal fetal medicine specialists, they manage preeclampsia all the time. They manage high-risk pregnancies and they do a very good job of doing that. The issue is that, um, one thing is that a lot of them are trained in abortion. So then if you essentially have a complication, they would make the decision to medically do the right thing if needed. You know, um, I'm not speaking in terms of, you know, whether I'm for it or not. I'm just speaking strictly medical. I'm not trying to get into the politics, but, um, you know, ultimately these are decisions that they make. And then now that a lot of, uh, MFM doctors and obstetricians are leaving areas where there's no abortion. And then you're looking at rural areas um, specifically, you know, a lot of rural areas, they only have like one or two OBGYN doctors. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, and then family medicine doctors also um, provide prenatal and postnatal care and everything like that. Um, so, you know, you're looking at a paucity of conditions where if it is not necessarily managed correctly, they can run into a lot of different problems, you know? So it's really important to have access to care is my point, you know, because um, I've taken care of patients, um, not so much now, but especially when I was in training where I took care of more patients or when I was uh, faculty at Meharry, um, you know, we, we took care of a lot of pregnant patients with CKD and, um, you know, management of their complications is very hard, you know? And, um, you know, we, we, I remembered when I was in training, we had one patient or just her blood pressure, just so tough to manage that she, she lost the baby, you know, and she was hospitalized and she had the QAN doctor seeing her, the CART doctor seeing her, we were seeing her and there, there wasn't anything we could do, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's sad. It really is. And these final minutes, and and I, if I could get you to just give our viewers and listeners a um, a quick suggestions about ways that they can advocate for their own health as it relates to hypertension. Uh, okay. What what are the numbers that they should be looking at? Uh, diabetes. Are there numbers that they should be looking at for that? A one C, and then also, how do we adjust our diet? What things should be included in our diets and or excluded from our diets to try to help us to participate in our own health care. Okay. Thanks for pulling me back to the basics. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, this is where we close out. Get you out of the I went down the rabbit hole too much, you know. But um yeah, so albumin to creatinine ratio. Okay. So you get you check a urine for an albumin to creatinine ratio. If you just check a urine albumin, it's not going to be as accurate. You need to have both values to create the ratio. It should be less than 30. All right. If it's slightly above 30, that is by definition what we call microalbuminuria. 
microalbuminuria, if not taken care of, can lead to macroalbuminuria. And the more protein you have in your urine, the more likely your kidneys are to get worse. So it's real important to manage that correctly, appropriately, and get on the right medications, right? Second thing is um, the creatinine and the EGFR, okay? So if you have an EGFR less than 60, speak to your primary care doctor about what they think is going on, whether or not they feel comfortable with that value or not. Not every single patient who has an EGFR less than 60 needs to see a kidney doctor. Now, I will say most of them should at the very least have that discussion with their um, primary care doctor about whether or not that should be the case. Second thing is you could always ask for a consult. There are some insurances that do not require a primary care doctor referral to see a specialist. The other thing is that you could always speak with your doctor and say, hey, I would like to see a kidney doctor. You know, like if you speak to your doctor and say, hey, I would like to do this. It's not like they're going to say no. You know, like they're just going to say, OK, fine. You know, one less thing off my plate that I need to look at, you know. So um, I, I think that you need to advocate for yourself. The second thing is ask questions. Um, a lot of times patients don't ask questions because they don't want to waste the doctor's time or they don't want to sound stupid. You know, um, one thing I always tell my patients when they ask a question, say, hey, um, I got a question. I think it might be a stupid question, but I want to ask it anyway. I say, the only stupid question is the one that you don't ask, the one that you walk into the parking lot like, man, I should have asked that question, you know? Like, because ultimately it's your health. You know, if, if you're not going to advocate for yourself, who is? You know, doctors are going to do the best that we can to take care of you, but we're not God. We could only work on the information that we have in front of us and the information that you give us. If you don't tell us something, if you take some random medications over the counter and just don't tell us about it, you know, that's, that's also, you know, something else. We need to know what medications you're taking what you're doing and everything else. I mean, I, I, that's my like two minute summary, you know. So it said target blood pressure and A1C. Oh, okay. And... Target blood pressure should be less than 130 over 80. Um, if you're less than 60 and have chronic kidney disease, if you're above 60, probably 140 over 90. Um, if you don't have protein in the urine or chronic kidney disease, less than 140 over 90, unless you have heart disease where it should be less than 130 over 80. And do include what foods we should be adding to our diet. I'm sorry? What foods should we be adding to our Should diet? we be adding? Or some water. <laughs> water is the one that you need to add to your diet. Um, and then I guess just try to minimize the salt. Um, I'm, I'm not, you know, the, the best person to talk about in terms of diet, I, I'll be honest, because usually what we do is we don't tell people what to eat. We tell people what not to eat, which is kind of a separate conversation. Um, because, you know, if someone has a high potassium or problems with phosphorus, where we didn't really talk about that, but that's, you know, so something else that you need to look at, you speak to patients that have really advanced levels of chronic kidney disease where potassium and phosphorus are issues to tell them, hey, low potassium, low phosphorus diet. No right. avocados. No avocados. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, not no avocados. <laughs> if you look at avocados in terms of potassium content, they're not high. They're like moderate. But oh, okay. if you eat 20 of them, it's going to add up. 
Well, I could eat a whole lot of avocados. I don't know about Tanya, but I love avocados. I, I don't eat, but I know bananas are often what yeah. my mom loves and stuff. So, so like bananas, if you have like for every one inch of a banana, you have like one milliequivalent of potassium. So that's why, like they say, well, you know, if you have a low potassium, eat like one banana. So if you have a ten-inch banana, it's like ten milliequivalents of potassium. A day or something like that. So, you know, ultimately, would you rather give someone a 10 or 20 milliequivalent potassium pill to keep potassium up or say, hey, eat two bananas, you know? Now, if they're diabetic, eating two bananas is a lot of sugar, <laughs> you know? So you might not tell them that. But if it's a non-diabetic patient, you'll say, hey, you know, 20 milliequivalents of potassium, <laughs> two, two bananas, that's, that's okay, you know? And where should our diabetic patients keep their A1Cs? Less than seven. Less than seven. Yeah. And A1C is what is that? And and just it's for those hemoglobin A1C. So they check the blood. And whenever you're you check the blood on the lab, it has a little kind of it's called a glycosylation. So it's a chemical thing. And the thing is, is that when you look at how much blood is glycosylated, that the more blood sugar, um, the higher your blood sugar is, the higher your glycosylated hemoglobin. So more blood is attached to a blood sugar ring. And that's where you get that hemoglobin A1C value. Well, good. Well, we thank you so much for joining us here and sharing uh, your expertise and indulging some of Sonia's questions. We really appreciate that. I'm glad she didn't drag you down that rapid political rabbit hole that oh, you wanted to. Hey, I, I try to stay away from it. You know, like, because, you know. Hey, good luck, because it's harder. It's harder every year, I'd imagine. <laughs> but, but we appreciate your expertise. And um, if someone wanted to enlist your service or wanted to come see you in Nashville, or you're in Columbia and Nashville? I'm in Columbia, but... Um, our, my group is called Nephrology Associates. Uh, we're pretty much all throughout um, Tennessee. And we also have um, a section of our group in Kentucky. So they're in Madisonville and Hopkinsville and Clarksville. But, um, you know, I'm in Columbia and Pulaski, but we have a lot of people in Nashville um, all, all through the mid-state, north and south. Um, yeah. And we communicate with each other. So even if you are live in one place and you go to one hospital, unless it's it's Vanderbilt, um, we typically have a doctor that can look at our notes and communicate with one another. And they're like, hey, you went to the hospital because X, Y, and Z. I'll get you in with Dr. Cardona within a week or two. You know, so they could yeah. see us in um, in Columbia, Tennessee, National Nephrology Associates. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, so. I'm going to tell my doctor, Dr. Cardona said this. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so She's probably going to get it wrong. Views and opinions are specifically <laughs> for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on the Roundtable Concert. We wish you the best as well. All right. Thank you. You take care. All right. Well, Dr. Williams, seems like you got some decent friends. We won't see some more of them in the next coming week. <laughs> <laughs> we have to decide what we're going to do for that 25th. And we'll hopefully, um, as we close out Black History Month, and so we'll see what happens. Maybe we have a special uh, closeout show for you. Surprise. Tune in. You wouldn't want to miss it.
You wouldn't want to. Um, and of course, if you have options or topics that you would like us to discuss, feel free to include those in the comments as well. So thanks so much, you guys, for tuning in. Always make sure you not only like the Facebook page, but go check us out on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on YouTube, get some more views there, and also check a repeat of this episode on Star Radio. Until next Saturday, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.